At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Every year about this time, WWE presents its premier event, WrestleMania. There won't be 80,000 screaming fans in a stadium due to the current circumstances. Tonight, we emanate from a closed set with no audience, as well as other locations. That's the reason. Certainly my respect comes by. But hopefully that simply will only be used as an entree to encourage someone's interest to then find out what we're really about. To make movies. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. It is April 10th, 2020, and I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. Now, in the fourth week of isolation, the fourth week since the National Basketball Association suspended its season, and much of the rest of the United States followed, the WrestleMania could not be stopped. That happened this past weekend. Cannot say the same for Vince McMahon's other company. More on that later. But in other news, W announced its Q1 earnings report will be Thursday, April 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern. A quarterly report which will be a big WrestleNomics day, as it always is. This is the first time ever that I'm aware of that W will be doing its earnings report, its conference call, so late in the day, 5 p.m. after the market closes. Normally, WWE does its reporting on Thursday morning as the market opens does this conference call at 11 a.m. while the market is open. Not this time. But in other news, WWE still taping. Taping matches this week at the Performance Center in Orlando and at Full Sail in Ware Park, Florida. Both locations in Florida despite the stay-home order in the state of Florida. Impact Wrestling is taping in Nashville despite a stay-home order in Tennessee. In fact, the very stay-home order that Mayor Kane talked about last week 
that AEW has d- done some taping in Georgia. Looks like they've got a lot in the can and they're done taping for a while. And Big Japan Pro Wrestling, a promotion that a, a guy like Dana White or Vince McMahon could really be proud of, at least until now. They've been pushing through and running this whole time in Japan. They finally canceled all their events for the rest of April. But today we're going to talk about WrestleMania, the reception, the WWE cinema, the economic implications. I have some quarter hour information. We'll look at how the Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa cinematic presentation on NXT did in the viewership. We'll look at how the Raw After Mania did in viewership. That and more. But first, we have some late breaking news. This is America, you know, you have the opportunity for failure in America. I'm not afraid to fail, you know, as long as I win in the long run. But I'm not going to fail this XFL, you know, despite, you know, and whether or not, you know, people out there like the fact that Vince McMahon in any way is associated with this league, you know, or they don't. I don't know what I've done to offend anyone in the sporting world. You know, I'm in the entertainment world as far as World Wrestling Federation Entertainment is concerned. The new XFL will kick off in 2020. And quite frankly, we're going to give the game of football back to fans. The new XFL will be a, it'll be a game that's reimagined. It'll reimagine the game of professional football. The XFL 2.0 appears to be done. According to Field Yates of ESPN, on a call today with COO Jeffrey Pollack, XFL employees were informed that the league is suspending operations and all employees have been laid off. For a league that already had its game suspended, the news that the XFL is suspending operations and that according to NFL.com's Tom Pelissero, the phrasing used on the call was that the league is shut down. I'm sure there'll be more to break on this. I'm recording right now, Friday afternoon. Eastern time, but it looks like Vince McMahon's second attempt at a football league has ended. A further report on ESPN.com says nearly all of the staff was laid off this morning and a handful of executives remain employed and the league currently has no plans to return in 2021. The conference call with employees reportedly lasted about 10 minutes. It's done, one staffer said. It's not coming back. No comment yet from the XFL itself. So Vince McMahon's latest attempt to do something outside of the wrestling business has come to an end. It raises the question, though, about what Vince McMahon's recent stock sale, his recent deal with Morgan Stanley for a prepaid forward contract related to three, about 3.5 million of Vince McMahon's WWE shares. It's hard to figure out now what that was all about. I suppose it's possible that Vince McMahon two weeks ago was trying to prevent the XFL from reaching its unexpected end. Or was Vince McMahon motivated to enter into this deal with Morgan Stanley for some other reason? Is there some sort of other business venture that Vince McMahon is going to get involved in? Or does this reflect some sort of lack of confidence in the value of W shares? And let's note again, as we said earlier, it's very unusual that WWE is going to do its reporting on April 23rd in the afternoon after the market closes. 
maybe they'll have as normal of a, a Q1 report as, as one can have here in, here in the age of COVID-19. But maybe they have some bad news to report. It's important, though, to remember that the XFL and WB are two separate entities. They're two separate corporations. Their finances, at least, are not supposed to be mixed, and I, I believe they largely are not. WB did sell the intellectual property related to the XFL to Alpha Entertainment, and WB employees did or do provide support services to Alpha Entertainment related to the XFL, and WB is compensated, according to SEC filings, for that work. As part of that transaction for the IP, WB was given a stake in the XFL at no cost to WB. So the, the shutdown or the failure of the XFL should not have a financial impact on WWE. That said, Vince McMahon sold a lot of WWE stock in order to fund the XFL. It was in December 2017 where we first saw information published with the SEC that Vince McMahon had sold a large amount of stock in order to fund Alpha Entertainment. Then he made a series of sales in November 2018 worth of a total of about $4.5 million to add to the over $100 million stock sale he had made in 2017. And then in 2019, he made a stock sale worth about $270 million. All that coming to a total of around $390 million. Considering Vince McMahon had so much cash to fund the XFL with, and considering he had TV deals to air his games on ABC, ESPN, Fox, and Fox Sports Network, not that those were likely paying out since the, the season was suspended, but I would have thought we would have seen uh, the XFL return in 2021, but apparently not. So maybe we'll learn more soon about why the XFL has apparently permanently ceased operations and just why he made the 3.5 million share deal with Morgan Stanley, whether or not WB investors should review their confidence in the company. I will mention too, uh, I did a big spreadsheet about uh, WB ownership, went over all the Form 4s, and you do notice something else there too. One member of the board of directors, Patricia Gotsman, who has been a member of WB's board of directors, I believe since 2012, that's the date of her first stock award, which are given out routinely, quarterly, to members of the board of directors. She has been, been on the board since 2012, been getting stock every quarter since 2012, and she made no sales of her WB stock until July 30th, 2019, when the stock was priced at $72 per share, about half of what it's going for today. She makes another sale on August 9th, 2019. And then this year, February 25th, she makes another sale. And then March 11th, she makes another sale. Uh, the sale in July 2019 is about 4,000 shares. The August sale is about the same number of shares. The February 2020 sale is 2,300 shares. And the March 2020 sale, 3,400 shares. So in total, she cashes out about $800,000 worth of W stock. Looks like she's still holding 12,000 shares. But interesting, when you see somebody who's on the board of directors, who maybe has some knowledge about W's outlook, makes no sales from 2012 through 2018, and has only made sales in the last 10 months or so, including one just last month, March 11th. 
So maybe that WQ1 report on April 23rd will be totally fine. But we'll be watching closely. And before we move on here, I see I need to shout again from the rooftops that WB is not going to lose its TV rights fees. AEW is not going to lose their TV rights fees, even if, uh, especially in the case of WB, even if WB, from this moment forward, as I sit here and speak, that they are no longer able to tape another wrestling match for the remainder of this year, going into, I don't know, even next year, unless there is a massive downturn in the economy that sucks up the TV and media industry and screws up their finances. I know we're in the middle of of a bad economic downturn right now, but we need one even bigger that seriously damages the the TV and media industry, that seriously damages NBC Universal and Fox. Barring that, W has a massive library. W has television facilities that they can film things in. So barring a far worse economic crisis, as long as WWE continues to deliver some form of content other than reruns that have already appeared in those time slots, as long as WWE continues to deliver some form of content that is new to those Raw and SmackDown time slots, they will continue to receive their guaranteed escalating TV rights fees. And in 2020, WWE is receiving TV rights fees substantially larger than the TV rights fees that they have ever received in the past, along with possible cost-cutting, and lower expenses related to producing TV, WWE stands to be about as profitable as they would have been in a normal COVID-19 free year of 2020. Speculation that I'm seeing about how the XFL is being shut down because of concerns about the finances of WWE don't make any sense to me. WWE and AEW, as long as they continue to deliver non-rerun content in their current time slots, I strongly believe, are going to get their expected TV rights money. In other news, in the category of anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation, the WWE corporate website seemingly accidentally posted a press release on Monday related to a class action lawsuit against WWE. The headline reads, Glancy, Prongay, and Murray reminds investors of looming deadline in the class action lawsuit against World Wrestling Entertainment, Inc. This is the class action lawsuit I think we've talked about before, which is being filed against WWE Vince McMahon, Michelle Wilson, and George Berrios, alleging that WWE withheld information from investors related to its Middle East-North Africa deal, related to its relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The plaintiffs allege that WWE knew the TV deal wasn't going to go well, and in the meantime, Berrios and Wilson made stock sales, and the filing is... Interesting to say the least, it takes for granted the story reported about how W wrestlers were stranded in Riyadh following the October 31st Saudi Arabia event. Some people that I've showed the lawsuit to think this is going to be a really hard case to prove. The lawsuit doesn't introduce any kind of new evidence other than what's been reported on the internet. So maybe we'll learn some interesting things through discovery as this lawsuit goes on, but we'll see. But anyway, pretty amazing that the that this press release was somehow published on the W Corporate website. I even got an email alert because of it. I imagine everybody that signs up for the email alerts got an email alert because of it. And this is not a press release that is written by WWE, but it's written by one of the law firms that's involved in this class action lawsuit, the Glancy Prongay and Murray LLP in Los Angeles. I imagine there's some sort of mix-up snafu with the wiring service somehow. 
And uh, I guess, in effect, WWE has signal boost this class action lawsuit against themselves. Uh, this law firm reminding investors of an upcoming May 5th, 2020 deadline to file a lead plaintiff motion in the class action filed on behalf of World Wrestling Entertainment investors who purchased securities between February 7, 2019 and February 5th, 2020. Uh, you will not find this press release on the W Corporate website as of this moment. It has been removed, it was remo- but it sat there for a few days before WWE took it down. And then from there, you know, we're going to talk about WWE's cinematic conventions in a, in a little while. The ones from WrestleMania anyway. But this, this new style of professional wrestling, should we call it, has already been replicated on WNXT on Wednesday night in a match between, a match, I, I guess, was it a match, between Johnny Griano and Tommaso Ciampa. You know, when we talk about the Bray Wyatt and uh, John Cena thing, the Undertaker and AJ Style thing, we don't know any viewership related to that. The W Network isn't a normal TV channel that publishes viewership information like the others. Or should I say, subscribes to Nielsen, and then it gets published by things like Showbuzz Daily. So we can't get answers to questions like, did people tune in or tune out of those matches on WrestleMania? But in the case of uh, the Gargano and Ciampa match that happened on the USA Network for NXT's TV show on Wednesday night, we do. Now, Showbuzz Daily only publishes the entire program's viewership. We know that that program was viewed by about 693,000 people, just edging out the results for AEW Dynamite on the same night head-to-head with 692,000 in the P2. AEW, though, getting the edge in the P1849 key demographic, AEW leading with a 0.26 to NXT's 0.19. So I think that is the third time that NXT has beaten AEW for total viewership NXT has beaten Dynamite only one time for P1849. So the question I want to ask is, this Gargano-Champa match went a full hour, including commercials. And I want to ask, did people stick with this long, unusual presentation? Did people stick with it? Did the audience grow? Did the audience leave more than it usually leaves throughout the course of the second hour? And of course, to, to try to answer that, we need, we need granular data, more granular data than Showbiz Daily provides. So the Wrestling Observer Newsletter usually publishes quarter hour information about AEW and NXT about a week after I've managed to procure this information a little bit earlier here. So you will only hear this information discussed for now on WrestleNomics Radio. So that means it's time for another edition of WrestleNomics Dubstep. And as it turns out for this match, the growth was very normal. The audience did not tune out in droves. The audience did not grow, and nor does it usually grow in the second hour, other than the fact that the first quarter hour is usually a good quarter. So what I'm looking at is the growth, the viewership growth from one quarter to the next of this program, and I'm comparing that to the average that I have on hand, which is the average of every quarter for the episodes running from November 13th to March 18th. So I'm saying, how much is this different from the average? And I'm looking at both P2 Plus, the total audience, and the key demo, P1849. And what we see in the second hour for NXT on Wednesday night is the audience rises pretty strongly for the first quarter of the second hour. Total audience increases 9%. Key demo increases 8%. And that's stronger than the average, which sees the total audience increase 4%, and the key demo increase 2%. 
So a big mash that was advertised, I believe, two weeks in advance. Maybe that accounts for the strong tune-in at the top of the hour. But then from there, the retention is extremely normal. In total audience, you usually see for the next four quarters, a loss of 3%, another loss of 3%, and another loss of 2%. And in actuality, as the Gargano and Ciampa match went on, for the remaining three quarters of the program. In total audience, you see a, a, a negative three, which is right on the average, a negative four, which is only 1% worse than the average, and a negative one, which is 1% better than the average. So pretty normal there in terms of total audience. Key demo for the remaining three quarters of the program as the, as the Gargano Ciampa match went on. Quarter six, lost virtually no one, which is a lot better than usual. Usually that quarter drops by about 5%. Quarter seven though, dropped by 3% which is only slightly worse than the usual drop of 2% in that quarter. And then quarter eight, the final quarter, held steady, which is only slightly worse than the final quarter's average of plus 1%. So I don't think there's a real strong conclusion to make there. If you wanted to uh, indict the WWE Cinema style, uh, this is not a data point to indict it with, nor is it a rousing success. Although the key demo audience uh, stuck with it, more so than the audience overall by a little bit. And then from there... The episode of Raw after WrestleMania, usually one of the highest rated episodes of Raw for the entire year. In some years, I believe it is the highest viewed Raw for the entire year. Saw no jump whatsoever compared to the trailing four weeks. The P2 Plus viewership on Monday was a negative 0.3% viewership loss versus the average of the trailing four weeks for WWE Raw. In previous years, a, a similar comparison actually has been on the decline. Uh, we, I went so far back uh, as to 2015, when the Raw After Mania was a 36% increase in viewership versus the trailing four weeks. 2016, a 16% increase versus the trailing four weeks. 2018, a 17% increase. 2019, only a 9% increase. And this year, nothing. Of course, it's a very unusual year. And there's a lot of competition out there. A lot of news programming is ranking highly in cable. As uh, programs on CNN and as, uh, as people are being instructed how to harm themselves on Fox News. However, I would say that the, the draw of, of the Raw after WrestleMania is really the crowd, isn't it? And I, th I think the distinction between what the crowd is on the night after WrestleMania and the distinction of, about what the crowd is normally has diminished over the years, which may account for the lack of spike in the rating for the Raw after Mania, even in the, in the, at least last year, where it was only up 9% versus the three years prior to that, where it was up 17, 16, 18%. And clearly this year, where there was no crowd at all, obviously, there's no jump in the rating. And I think back to 2015, where probably the Raw crowd after WrestleMania in that year was more extremely different. And it was worth a 36% jump in the rating. More extremely different than it was in subsequent years. And maybe at least more so than it was last year, where it only has a 9% jump. So what I mean by that is I, I, in 2015... I would say the, there was more of a dichotomy in the WWE audience. And let me know if you think otherwise, but I think there was more of a, of a, of a difference. In 2015, I went to a number of WWE shows 
and in 2016 as well. And in the course of writing pieces like the search for Roman's house show pop. And there was very much a feeling that there's a house show audience that reacts one way. There's a TV audience that reacts a bit differently. And there's a pay-per-view audience that reacts even more differently than that. Sort of the idea that there is this casual audience that goes to house shows. There's this more discerning but more passionate audience that goes to TV shows and even more strongly goes to pay-per-view shows and even more strongly goes to WrestleMania shows and then is really concentrated on a night like the Raw after WrestleMania. And that distinction, I think, has been diminished uh, maybe within the last year. But if you've been to a house show lately and you think otherwise, let me know. At least that's my theory on why, and not necessarily this year, of course, but on why uh, the, in the year before, Raw After Mania was only worth a 9% jump. Now to say something almost at odds with my earlier rant about W's finances, that's kind of a, of a shorter term thought. And I do think the risk to WB and to AEW for that matter, the longer that this that COVID-19 restrictions go on, the longer that there are not normal live events, the more I think audiences are going to tune out of pro wrestling. And I question, especially in WWE's case, whether the audiences that disengage will re-engage. You know, the common conception about wrestling fans and wrestling viewership is that wrestling viewers are habitual creatures. They're creatures of habit. And once that WCW programming went away, that audience went away forever. That audience was not regained by WB at any point. I suppose audiences will return to some extent, and I'm sure WB will put on a big hyped show, maybe with returning stars and with hyped matches when things go back to normal and WB is able to run its first normal live Raw and or SmackDown again. I'm sure it'll be hyped up as a big deal and it'll pop a rating for one night. But I'm skeptical that the sustained return of the viewership that is lost during this time will come back. In a strong way, at least. In the earlier part of this year, in the before times, as some people are calling it, before COVID-19 restrictions, Raw was doing 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, maybe sometimes even 2.4 million viewers. Now the viewership is barely over 2 million. Two weeks ago, the viewership was under 2 million. I think this is probably going to go on for months. Maybe for the remainder of the year or close to it. And if it does, raw viewership is probably going to go well under 2 million. And other than a, a minor uptick when things go back to normal, I don't see how WWE regains its audience in a big way. And SmackDown on Fox is doing, in the before times, 2.4, 2.5 million. More lately, doing 2.3 million. And if this goes on for months, maybe that viewership total gets close to 2 million. Maybe flirts with going under it. And I'm not sure what the alternative is. But unfortunately, I think there are a lot of WWE viewers who are, who are holding on by a thread. And it doesn't take much for the audience to tune out. Some of them, anyway. And I think the trust relationship between the brand and the audience has been damaged over the years, a problem that is largely in the hands of the CEO slash chairman slash head of creative, a problem that he probably doesn't even fully identify. And if viewership is 
acceleratingly damaged in this year. I think there are long-term problems for WWE. Problems that were probably further down on the horizon that get you get closer to them because of this accelerated possible decline in viewership. But in the short term, I think WWE will be okay. TV rights fees will still be there. TV rights fees will still be escalating as time goes on as they are contractually guaranteed to. And I don't think that there is a viewership requirement. In fact, WWE said as much in February on the earnings call when analysts asked if there was some sort of viewership requirement related to WWE's contracts with NBC Universal or Fox. And they said there is not a viewership requirement. Of course, those are five-year deals, though, that will be renegotiated uh, probably sometime around 2023. But in the short term, WWE will be okay financially. They'll probably set profit records, probably this year. And WWE might cut costs. WWE might lay off some of their employees. We saw something similar happen in 2014, a year when WWE, for a full year, was not profitable due to the big investment in the W network that year and maybe subscriptions not growing as quickly as, as maybe they had hoped. So I would be on the lookout for some cost cutting. And the other big risk that's possible is maybe there isn't a second Saudi Arabia event in 2020. There already has been one. But those I strongly believe are worth $50 million in revenue every time they go. You know, I heard Saudi Arabia and Russia maybe have a deal that could repair the oil crisis. But as I've said before, I think if there continue to be restrictions on international travel and if there cannot be large spectator events in Saudi Arabia by the end of the year or by November, $50 million worth of revenue, which is more money than is involved in WrestleMania, will be at risk with possible downstream effects in merchandise sales. Of course, if any merch has been wiped out completely, ticket sales have been wiped out completely. But possible downstream effects in the e-commerce merchandise sales and possibly in the sales of products related to WWE's consumer products product licensing line, mainly action figures and video games. Moving on, finally, to WrestleMania, the two-day event, too big for one night. So I'm curious to see on April 23rd whether WWE reports a WrestleMania WWE Network paid subscriber number as they have in years past. They did last year, uh, but what they didn't do last year for the first time is they didn't have a conference call the morning after WrestleMania to tell you right away what the number was. But they did report the number in the following earnings report, and that number was down. I expect even in a, in a normal 2020, that number would be down again from the year prior. But I think things will be even a little bit worse with the, the, the no audience phenomenon. I think there are a number of factors related to that. A lack of competition from other sports on the positive side can only make way for interest in WWE. And maybe let's, let's grant it to them that it is, it's a positive that WWE tried to compensate for a lack of live audience by making WrestleMania a two-day event. And on the positive side, there, there was a lot of positive buzz following night one from the Undertaker and AJ Styles presentation that may have encouraged interest. But on the negative side, I think the lack of live audience makes watching the event less appealing. The Raw and SmackDown episodes that built up WrestleMania had lower than usual viewership. Meanwhile, there's been increased interest in 
news programming, and economic stress on consumers due to COVID-19. A lot of people are out of work, filing for unemployment. The general economic stress may have led some subscribers to reevaluate their W Network subscription. So is there any real data out there that we can look at to get an idea of how much interest there was in WrestleMania this year relative to previous years? Google Trends is out there. Google Trends, though, cuts the data up into weeks. So I'm going to wait a couple days before trying to do a comparison. But we do know that searches for night one were higher than night two. I don't know if that's really meaningful. But the week prior, uh, W searches were down in comparison to the weeks prior to WrestleMania in previous years, which somewhat reliably predict the level of interest in the week of WrestleMania. So we'll, we'll see next week what that's like. We'll see in a few days, probably. Interestingly, though, W did advertise their next pay-per-view, Money in the Bank, for May 10th, presumably in an empty building. So W seems intent on doing more pay-per-views. And I think it's going to be really difficult. I think WrestleMania may be the exception because WrestleMania is, is such a big cultural event every year. But for the, the rest of the pay-per-views, I think it's going to be really hard to maintain interest and to keep subscribers up. And again, I don't know what the better alternative is. But also on the risk side, I think there are questions around government pressure, about how long we'll be able to do match tapings. It seems quite likely that the COVID-19 cases are going to continue to rise, whether you're listening to Dr. Anthony Fauci or the U.S. Surgeon General. So, And finally, we'll talk about WrestleMania after this. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship, it's a time machine. While Vince McMahon, for now, may not be a pro football promoter, he did at least get to make movies at WrestleMania. And I kind of figured that uh, necessity would, would be the mother of some sort of invention. And that wrestling companies would produce some sort of very unusual form of uh, programming or matches here while they have no crowds. And I expect WWE will celebrate the productions as a, as a success on the next earnings call. And I think there should be some credit given to, to WB for being inventive here in the face of a, a real challenge with no audiences, no live audiences. So they produced these uh, two segments with Bray Wyatt and John Cena on the second night and The Undertaker and AJ Styles on the first night. And I'm sure we will see, and as noted, we already have seen in the same week with NXT, a number of imitations inside and outside of WWE. I'm sure WWE will continue to do this with diminishing returns and... There are debts here to, uh, to Matt Hardy's final deletion. There are debts here, of course, to the White Castle of Fear. 
from WCW in 1993. Look it up. You know, WWE did make attempts to, seemingly inspired by the the Matt Hardy stuff, to uh, do some similar segments with, what was it, The New Day and Bray Wyatt. But none got people talking quite like the Styles Undertaker match and the Cena-Bray Wyatt match. So I suspect now that The Undertaker will never retire if we're making movies. Now, actors don't retire, do they? Unless you're Clint Eastwood, I guess. I think the further use of this cinematic style will allow WWE to prolong the careers of aging talent like The Undertaker, who has struggled to perform in-ring for live matches in recent years on WrestleMania. I've seen a few wrestlers who haven't wrestled in years due to physical limitations already responding to, uh, to these cinematic presentations with the idea that, hey, I could, I could come back. So big stars will be around for a longer amount of time. That's a good thing, right? Right? But I fear such productions will enable WWE's already present over-reliance on older legendary talent. I think the emphasis on older talent that's already over, that already has the trust of Vince McMahon, will have more longevity now, possibly at the expense of developing the star power of younger wrestlers who have to carry the business at events and programming year-round. To be fair, though, Drew McIntyre and Braun Strowman, both still in, in, in their tender 30s, they were put over strong as new champions with their wins over Brock Lesnar and Bill Goldberg. The benefit of their victories, though, was naturally muted by the fact that those wins took place without the energy of a live crowd. But it does concern me that WWE will have yet another reason to continue to go with the pat hand with the talent that he trusts from his past instead of the millennials who he said in 2014 were afraid to fail. And WWE will continue to be a show that peaks as a nostalgia show. They can pop a rating, but only with the return of The Rock, The Undertaker, Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, and now John Cena. Only for the 1,000th episode of SmackDown, or Raw 25, or the Raw reunion. And in some ways it's appropriate that, that the Cena and Bray Wyatt presentation was loaded with references from the past. It's in line with the wider cultural trend, I think. A world where just about any piece of media is a few clicks or a small subscription fee away from being relived. A wider entertainment culture where a growing number of movies, for example, are yet another iteration of an existing franchise. With this latest step, WWE better fills that form. You can watch a huge selection of its recorded past in the thousands of hours available on the WWE Network. The history of WWE's business, the history of the wrestling industry overall, and the example set by every other company in the present demonstrates that a wrestling company's full financial potential can be realized only through the development of new stars. A new way to rely on old stars allows WWE to be more comfortable in its conclusion that its current audience just will not accept the development of a new star. That answer is a refusal to adapt, an admission of defeat, and opens the way for long-term vulnerability and immediate and already present disenfranchisement of fans and talent. WWE's answer to that call to adapt is to adapt its art form in a way that better allows it to hang on to the personalities that it trusts and knows rather than taking the risk of reimagining its vision in a way that might actually fulfill not just its great creative potential, but its great economic potential. Thanks for listening again. Don't forget to wash your hands. 
don't forget to say hello in there. You can find information in my latest work at WrestleNomics.com. And I'll talk to you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.